Amen. Amen. Well, that's right. If you guys were here last week, we are going to continue our study. The book of James, How to Spot a Phony Christian. Okay. Now, as I told the first service, for those of you hooked on bad French, it would be pronounced jamais. I thought it was funny, but I was quickly corrected by one of our deacons who apparently knows French. Uh, did you know that jamais is actually a French word? I just made it up, but apparently it's a real word, and it means never. So I'm never going to do that again. So we're in the book of James. That's right. How to spot a phony Christian. Okay. And if you heard last time, we saw just in our prelude, we didn't even get into the book. We'll get into the book actually today. Uh, the prelude. Wait a second. We're answering the, the, the tagline there. What, how to spot a phony Christian. Is that really what the book of James is all about? Uh-huh. Big time. In fact, the book of James is not the only book in the Bible that deals with this unfortunate reality. Okay. It's all over the place we saw last time. And we saw in the scripture last week, there's several different ways to spot these critters in your midst. Okay, we saw that it could be seeking God only with their head. They're seeking God only with their thoughts. They're seeking God only with their religion or works. They seek God only with their lips. Okay, and we saw this shouldn't surprise us that this is a reality because where are we getting this from? From the Bible. And it's in a multitude of books in the New Testament. So it shouldn't surprise us. But we also saw last time, Second Peter said it's going to happen, not just back then at the birth of the church, it's going to happen in the future. And that's what we left off with here. Second Peter chapter 2, 1 through 3. But there were also false prophets, were, past tense, false prophets among the people. What's a false prophet? That's a faker. Okay, among the people. Just as there will be in the future, what? False teachers among you. Who's the context? The church. False teachers, fakers are going to be in the church. And here's what they're going to do. They're going to secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, uh, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many, now listen to this, the context of the church. Many in the church are going to follow these fakers. Good thing that's not happening today. Yeah, it's going on big time today. We saw it last week. Many will follow their shameful ways and bring the way of truth into disrepute. And here it is. This is what I want to hone in on. Jane, or Peter tells us another acid test, how to spot them. What's the motive? Why are they doing this? Why are these fakers in the church? In their greed. They're only here for money. And here's what they're going to do. These false teachers are going to what? Exploit you. They're going to rip you off of your cash. In other words, with what? Stories they made up. But you ain't fooling God. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Wait a second. You mean to tell me there's not just phony Christians going to happen again in the future, just like the early church? But Peter now calls it out, specifically says they're only going to be here to rip you off your cash, and it's not based on the truth. It's just a bunch of baloney that they made up, and and many people are going to be duped and give these people their cash and Sound familiar? What do you think is on the bulk of so-called Christian TV today? Exactly this. These fake hucksters ripping people off of their cash in their greed, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, all that baloney, and it's not based on the scripture. It's not just false teachings. It's stories made up. Oh, God, I had a vision. God told you what? It's exactly what he said. In fact, if you don't think these hucksters are all over, fake Christians all over the church today, here's one who admitted it back in the day. All I got to say is at least he was honest. Let's take a look at this. Thank you. 
come. Better men and women. And not so much juvenile delinquency. There would be, you know, gestures like when I would say Jesus, my arms would have to go out to when I would say the devil, I would go forward. And she had this incredible set of signals there. Like if she would say, oh, Jesus, if I was going too slow. Or if she said, glory to God, you know, that meant you better speed up and go a little bit faster. Then later on, they came up with more signals like praise God meant, you know, you've got the people where you need them. You better take an offering and raise some money. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Lift up your hands and worship the Lord. Praise Him tonight. Hallelujah. Oh, God is so real tonight. If you can't feel the Holy Ghost tonight, man, you're dead and you don't know it. So why don't you praise Him? Why don't you call upon His name? Why don't you worship the Lord tonight? Oh, lift up your hands and praise Him. Hallelujah. 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 Oh, oh hallelujah. Oh, where you say you're saved then there's the fire baptism when you get the Holy Ghost and that's the tongues thing and they love to work people over you've got to like shoot in on this when you see people gathering around people and start laying hands on and praying with someone you've got to like come in with the camera too it's very important because they'll be laying hands on someone and the poor person will be saying you know thank you Jesus now this is a person that's already saved but they're getting the baptism and someone will be standing there going you know and the poor person will be standing there and they're not saying anything then after a while about four or five more will gather around and they'll start doing the same thing you know come on speak it out speak it out until all of a sudden the person will you know get so overwhelmed by the thing that they start going you know and the next thing you know, oh, that's it you've got it like they feel good we got another one you know then they'll go on to the next person are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Thank you, Jesus. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Jesus is so good to me tonight. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I praise the Lord. Oh, glory, glory. Hallelujah. I feel good in my soul. <laughs> praise the Lord. Oh. Sure isn't as heavy as it used to be, though, in the old days. Wow. There's, there's one guy that gets into it so heavy that he's into, he prophesies. And he told me how he did. He sat right, I mean, he looked right across the table back and forth at me. And, and, and he told me how, you know, how he confiscates money. He says he's on, this station is over 40 states. And uh, he'll go on there and he'll be, get on the radio and he'll say, I know that listening to my little voice tonight, that there's some lady out there and you've got $10 put away in a cookie jar. Now God spoke to my heart and told me to go and tell you to get that $10 and get it in the mail and send it to me and God will bless you. God will give you a reward such as you have never known before. And then he comes back to me and he tells me, he says, if you're on the radio and you're going over 40 states 
and you're on at prime time and got thousands of people listening, the chances are that there are at least two or three hundred little old ladies who've got a ten dollar bill in a cookie jar. And so if you even get, you know, if a couple hundred go over and get it and send it to you, that's two grand that you've made just like that. And so, you know, if you're going to get into big time religion, this is the games you've got to play, things like that. It's a, it's a, you go into it as a business and you work it as a business, you know. going to do something for you. Then I'll turn around to the crowd and I'll say everyone, do you believe it? And you know, everyone say yes, you know. I said, that's not enough, but there's no faith here tonight. I can't do anything. You've got to believe it. And I'll go, do you believe it? Again, then by this time the crowd's go, yes. And I'll say, sister, as I lay my hands on you, it's going to happen. By this time you're just like this, you know. Because <laughs> I do a whole thing on you. Then, you know, I sort of like get down to now I'm going to pray the prayer and everyone bow your heads. And all of a sudden, you go, in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and you know, this time that the shock doesn't get you. you know? How do you feel? Oh, hallelujah. hallelujah. This is God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Once you get one or two, once that you get one or two that really come off and say, yeah, I really felt that, you know, I had a bad back, I had a bad leg, then there's a host of say, oh, yeah, I feel better, too, because like 90% of it's psychosomatic. I feel better, yeah. And 100% of it's coming from a what? A non-Christian, inspired by the devil, because he's a liar in the fall of all lies. That guy's a liar. But at least he admitted it, I guess. This is where? In the church, what did Peter say was going to happen again in the future? Phony Christians in our midst, ripping people off of their cash with stories they made up. Oh, by the way, did you see that that non-Christian, the guy who didn't even believe in God, admittedly, could speak gibberish like nobody's business? You know why? Because gibberish is not the gift of tongues or languages. Acts 2 is always a known language. Non-Christians can do that, and he did. But it was all a process a manipulation, okay? And it says there, Peter, these people would worm their way into the church and not just rip people off their cash. They would what? Introduce destructive heresies. So they were false Christians ripping people off their cash. It's coming in the future, and they're going to introduce false teachings that are destructive to the church. Wait a second. How could that happen? Because we're not holding the line. We're not reading the scripture. We're not studying the New Testament that tells us all over the place, this is going to happen, and here's the good news. Here's how to spot them. So that's why we're going to begin that journey in the book of James, which is a book about how to spot these people. Why? To keep us pure and protected and, dare I say, to witness to these people. But you certainly don't allow them into church leadership positions. Are you kidding me? Okay, that's why we have an apostasy today, because that's exactly what's going on. But let's begin that journey today. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1, verse 1, the book of James chapter 1, verse 1, and let's begin this journey, how to spot phony Christians, Okay. And uh, James chapter 1, verse 1. And the reason why it's only to verse 1, you know why? 
That's as far as we're going to get. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here as we begin this journey, how to spot phony Christians, right? For our own good, right? And again, James isn't the only book that does that. It's all over the scripture. We'll see that again today. But James chapter one, verse one, let's go ahead and stand as we read God's holy word. It says this, James, a servant of who? God and of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, what's it say? Greetings. Wait till we unpack that word. There's a lot more going on with that. And you may be seated if you can there, but let's now bust it into the original Greek. We just saw it says, James, a servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Here's literally what the Greek says. I love this. James, a what? Not just a servant, a bond slave. Big difference of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, those in dispersion, be what? Constantly rejoicing. What do you mean be constantly rejoicing? Why? Well, we'll see that eventually, but let's bust it out even more. James, of course, is actually the Greek word iakabos. Let's say that. Iakabos. How many of you guys going to name your next cat that? <laughs> I'd try doing something. But anyway, that's right. Uh, iakabos actually it literally means, you can see, it means what? Jacob. So that's right, in case you're ever on Jeopardy, Jonathan, and get that question, that double daily column, huh? 500 bucks. Huh? What's the real name of the book of James? It's Jacob, right? You go, well, why is it called James? Well, it's just part of the Greek transliteration to the English iakabos to iakabos, and that's how we got James. But technically, the book of James is really the book of Jacob. It's a very common name of the day. Now, let's begin to break this down. Who is this James or Jacob, right? Let's take a look at the identity. You basically have four different choices if you're hooked on doing CSI and detective work in the Bible, which we should as Christians, as good Bereans, right? Because there's different James mentioned in the Bible, right? So which one is it, right? Well, let's take a look and do the process of elimination. Here's your four options. You got James, the son of Alphaeus, one of the 12. You got James, the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, a different one. Okay, James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of of the apostle John, or you got James, the half-brother of Jesus. Well, which one is it? Well, let's do a process of elimination. The first two are basically James that are kind of obscure, so there's really no reason to attribute this letter to them. The next option, James, the brother of John, the apostle John, uh, he actually was killed, martyred in Acts chapter 12 before this book was written, so it couldn't have been him. So that's why most people, I would agree, land on this. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Wait a second. Jesus' brother? Was Jesus the oldest or the youngest? Good answer. That's right. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? That's another one of those things, right? No, they didn't. That's right. No, they didn't, right? They couldn't have because they didn't have babies yet and belly, belly button, whatever. That's right. Let's close in prayer. That's all we have time to learn today. That's all you're going to probably remember, unfortunately. Why did I say that? But anyway, uh, but no, that's what we got going on here. Jay, did Jesus have brothers? Yeah, but they're half brothers. He was the oldest, the virgin birth. That's why we say that. You got to be consistent in the scripture. And you go, what? Jesus had brothers? Yeah, he had brothers and sisters, right? But Jesus was the oldest. Now, James is mentioned as one of his brothers, right? Matthew 13, 53 through 58, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, coming to his hometown, and he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Literally in the Greek, their minds were blown out of the water, man. And they go, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Wait a second, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his what? Brothers, who's the first on the list? James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and what? Aren't all his sisters with us? And then they, they said, well, you know, what's going on there? Where did this man get all this, these things? And they, they took offense at him and and, and, you know, he's just a local boy. He can't be the Messiah. What's going on here? Right? But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, his, uh, in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. But Jesus had brothers and sisters. Okay, and things like that. And let me just give you one more 
the, James was his half-brother, the author of this book. Galatians 1.19, Paul's talking in the context here after he got saved, Paul, and then he goes to Jerusalem. And who does he run into? I saw none of the other apostles, only who? James, who? The Lord's brother. So that's just two quick references. That's who this James is, uh, the half-brother Jesus that most would say, and I would agree, is the author of this book. So let's, let's take a look at this James or Jacob guy. Who, he's the Lord's half-brother, but what about him? Well, if you look at the scripture, he's a very important man. Uh, in the early church, okay? And you see that in a couple of different ways. And uh, he was there in the upper room, Acts chapter one. So at the beginning of the church, church is born in Acts chapter two, right? Uh, he was personally visited by Jesus. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter, kind of cool. Of all people, you get to be singled out. And like Paul, later, Jesus comes to visit you. But James, that was mentioned there, 1 Corinthians 15. And then he was a pillar in the church, in the early church, okay? And you see that in Acts 15, Later, when Paul begins to go out with Barnabas and Gentiles start getting saved, in the beginning, it was only just Jewish people getting saved, right? Uh, but James was there at that council. So James was an important leader. But not only that, when you start to go into the text, you see something very important. Why was James, uh, James an important leader? Well, because the next thing is he was a godly man, okay? James was a godly man. And this is what you want, certainly for somebody who's a leader in the church. Hello, okay? Anybody ever go to church service and that guy ain't godly? I'll give you one quick example. I won't say who it was, but uh, uh, I had one, uh, one guy tell me, he was a pastor. Uh, he even told me, he says, uh, he thought it was funny. I didn't. He says, you know why I never put Christian bumper stickers on my vehicle? Because I don't want people knowing I'm a Christian. Pastor, that's not the kind you want. Wow. But James was called the just in church history. He was a godly man. Even outside the Bible, you can deduce this was a godly guy. No wonder God got him in this important leadership role because that's a characteristic you want, okay? Which, by the way, he was called James the Just. That was his nickname. In church history, that's how he was known. That's how it was recorded. When people saw him over the pattern of his life, they're going like, that's a just guy. He's James the Just. Here's the point. What's your nickname? Hmm? Bobby the Backslider. That's right. Give it up for Bobby. I had to say that because it rhymes. What's your name? Right? Jonathan the Just. What is it? Ryan the Righteous. Earl the Worldly Guy. Susan the Sinner. Right now, you're walking with Jesus Christ. If God were to give you a nickname, and if you don't like the nickname, get right with God. But James was a just man. And you see this church history. I don't know if you guys ever... Heard of a Fox's Book of Martyrs? Man, you think you're having a bad day? Read that book and it'll slap a smile on your face. He ain't had, oh, early church was just martyred, murdered, oh. But this is where we get this account of James being a just man, right? And here's what it says. Uh, James met his death uh, around uh, AD 62. What happened was the Jewish who rejected Jesus, the Messiah, this is just prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, uh, they took advantage of uh, this. It, there was an interchange going on with the leadership there in the Romans, and they, uh, they charged James with, quote, breaking the law, of course, the Jewish law. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they came to James for help in, quote, putting down this rising Christian belief. And here's what they said to him, as recorded by church history, to James. We implore you to restrain the people, for they have gone astray in their opinions about Jesus as if he were the Christ. So here's what we want you to do. Persuade all those who've come here to Jerusalem to the Passover. So there's tons of people all over the place. 
Persuade those who've come to Passover concerning this Jesus, for uh, we all listen to your persuasion since we, as well as all the people, bear testimony that you are just. Again, even though they didn't believe what he said, they knew this guy was a just man. They said, you show partiality to no one. And so here's what they said. Take your stand then upon the summit of the temple, and from that elevated spot, you may be clearly seen and your words may be plainly audible to the whole people. So they stuck him up on top of the temple there so everybody could hear what he's saying, right? And, uh, and so, and then it goes, to the scribes and Pharisees' dismay, James boldly testified that Christ himself sits in heaven at the right hand of God and shall come on the clouds of heaven. Quote, the scribes and Pharisees then said to themselves, we have not done well. <laughs> yeah, it's called, it backfired. He ain't gonna deny Christ. Right? We have not done well in procuring this testimony to Jesus. Now, watch this. They get mad at him, but let us go up to him. He's on the temple. Let us go up and throw him down that they, the crowd, may be afraid and not believe in him, i.e. Jesus. So here it is recorded. This is how he died. They threw James down. Then they began to stone him because he wasn't killed by the fall. James then asked and kneeled down. He turned and said, I beseech you, Lord God, our father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then while they were stoning him to death, one of the priests began to cry aloud, stop, what are, you, what are you doing? This just man, even the way he died, demonstrated that character. This just man is praying for us. But one among them, one of the folders, took the staff by which he was accustomed to wring out the garments of the dives, like a club that they beat the clothes with. He hurled it at the head of this just man and killed him. Even the non-Christians This is a godly man. That's a just man. They didn't believe what he said, unfortunately, but he's a just man. Can you imagine that? He's, you don't fall from the, you don't die from the fall from the temple. Then they start stoning you to death. You're still alive and praying, interceding God for his mercy for them. And then they hit you in the head of the club. James was a godly man, okay? Now, when you get into the text, you're gonna see he not only was a godly man, which that's what you want in leadership, but you also want this next characteristic. He was a humble man. And that's what you see when you start tearing apart just this very first verse. Okay, let's go back to that. He says there, James a what? I'm a big giant servant in God. I got degrees on top of degrees. Well, I've been doing this for 500 years. I t-. What's he call himself? A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That takes humility, especially when you put it in the context. Now, there's something else that's going on here that's absolutely amazing. Okay, the word there, servant, okay, it's not really technically servant. It's okay, but it's not really the true meaning of the word. It's the Greek word doulos, okay, which means what? Bond slave. A bond slave is radically different than servant. If you want to use servant and just strictly servant, you would use the Greek word diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon from. What's a deacon? Literally, in the rough Greek, it means a shuffler of the dirt. It's basically a waiter, right? When you, when you go to a restaurant and you get served by the waiter, what are they, what are they, they're there for you what? Would you like some salt and pepper? Would you like, oh, I'm sorry about that. We brought you chicken. Let's throw that in the trash. Let's get some real food that's actually nutritious. Right? But they're there to what? They're there to serve you. That's a, why? Because that's their job. That's a servant. That's a diakonos. That's, this is not diakonos. This is a bond slave. It's doulas. This is how he introduces himself, which is amazing, Right? It shows you that he is a humble, he's a godly guy, he's a just man, but he's also a humble man because of how he introduces him. I mean, think of what he does not say. Think of what he could have said and would have been legit. Hey, you guys need to listen to me. Can you imagine him at a board meeting if he wasn't humble? Uh, what's that? <laughs> yeah, in case you haven't heard, I'm James. You know, the half-brother of Jesus. 
<laughs> uh, what, what's that? Did you? I saw him with my own eyes. He visited me after the resurrection. Did he visit you? No. <laughs> I grew up with him. I grew up with the Messiah. Me and him were real tight. You might want to listen to what I'm going to say. You know what I'm saying? I was the pastor of the very first church. I've been doing this for 900 years. I think I know what's going on. Can you imagine if that... You know people like that? That ain't the people you want in leadership, right? That's not what we see. James was a humble man. He was a doulos. He was a bond slave. He didn't call himself just a servant of diaconus. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm just a, I'm a slave. I'm, a ser- I'm here. I'm here. And a bond slave was something that was a permanent service. And only death would set you free from that. And that's what we see. It was not about me. It was about he. It was about I'm here to serve God. I'm here as his slave. Yes, God, you must increase. I must decrease. This is James. And then when you take a look at the leaders, the people that God used throughout church history, even in the Old Testament, guess what they were called? Not diakonos. It was a doulos, a slave. Right? And you see that. In the Old Testament, Moses was called the doulos of God. Did God use him? Slightly. Daniel was called the doulos of God. Joshua and Caleb, the doulos of God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, Isaiah, other prophets. When James calls himself doulos, he's identifying himself with many honored men who were servants of God, literally bond slaves. And he says nothing, listen, he says nothing about his human relationship to Jesus Christ, even though it would have been legit. Only, I'm here to render spiritual service and worship. Whatever he says, yes, sir, how high, sir, what do you want? I'm just a doulos of God and of Jesus Christ. So here we have James. He's a high-position leader, important leader in the church, right? He, he's humble. He's an important guy, okay? And again, this kind of fits what he says later in the book of James, right? Why does he point this out? Because you need to be humble if you're going to be used mightily of God like James was. And that's what he says here, James 4, 67. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What do you mean resist the devil? Well, where do you think thoughts of pride are coming from? The devil. What caused the fall of Satan? Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. I will be like God. I, I, me, myself, and I, the unholy training. Pride. That's what caused. Resist that. Why? Because God opposes that. It's a military term. It literally means God is coming at you in full battle array when you think it's all about you and you're full of pride. If there's anybody you don't want coming at you at full battle array, all weapons armed, coming to get you, resisting you, it's God. But you want to act like the devil? You're going to get treated like the devil, if you will. But if you what? He gives grace to the who? Humble. Humble. Humility. and Humble in the, in the Greek it literally means to shave the top of the mountain off. Wouldn't it be great if you could just go to Walmart and buy a can of humble? And, well, he's all of a sudden humble. No. What happens is, what I've learned anyway, and we'll see this later in our study, Lord William, humility is produced in you when you go through humiliating circumstances that God will allow you to go through to what? Shave the top of the mountain off. You thought you were getting pretty big for your britches, huh? Really? Watch this. And then you go, oh God, please forgive me. Guess I'm not as high and mighty as I thought I was. Now, why is that a good characteristic? Well, James fills in the blank. You see, it's God's grace that we need for the power of God to do what he's called us to do. It's the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. It's not you trying to emulate that. It's a supernatural work. 
God uses us as his vessels, and if we stay humble, then his grace flows. His grace flows, you're empowered by God to do amazing things, just like James. But if you get prideful and arrogant, guess what? Including in church leadership, what? It short circuits the power of God. And you wonder why things don't take place. So James was a just man. He was a humble man. He was an important man. Uh, And and unfortunately, this is what our society uh, is doing. This is what we saw as even in the church. What's the number one celebrated virtue in society today? Self, pride, love yourself, self this, me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity. No wonder it's messed up. You're acting like a little devil's going around. Then we even saw even in the church, certainly in our Satanism study on Wednesday nights, right? Which again, pride caused the fall of Satan. But what's being promoted in the church today? Self-worship. Learn to be better you. It's all about self, self self-esteem, self this, self that. Get self, better self, better self, self. That is antithetical to what James is saying. God opposes that. But he gives grace to the humble. With this attitude like James, I'm just a bond slave, man. Of God and of Jesus Christ. You see, you're going to be a slave to something. I don't know about you. I have no problem calling myself a slave of Christ. You know, it's called, he's a, uh. You're either going to be a slave to sin, a slave to this world, a slave to the devil, slave to other people, slave to yourself. You know what? I'd rather be a slave to God. Because last time I checked, everything he asked me to do is for my good. Who wouldn't want to serve him? And stick your, like the Old Testament, stick your ear to the wall and bang, pop that all through there. I will serve you for life. Even though I could get my freedom back, I will use this freedom to serve you. That's what James was. And he was a great man of God. We need to get back to, what's he say? Is this how you introduce yourself? Hi there. My name's Earl. I'm a servant of the flesh, right? And of this wicked world system. I are a Christian. No, please don't do that. Not just your nickname. Fill in the blank. Put your name there. Instead of James, can you honestly say right now in your walk with Jesus Christ, I am a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, it's not really servant. It's a slave. I exist to do his will, not mine. That's very, very important. Now, the next thing is, that's who James is. Let's take a look at the timing of this book. And when you get the timing of this book, man, it totally makes sense why this book is all about how to spot a funny Christian. It's absolutely fascinating, okay? Now, most people believe that the book of James was written in the mid-40s. Okay, you go, what? Yeah, which makes it the very first book, chronologically, in the New Testament. But Pastor Billy, I was over here, and it's not too far from the tables of weights and measures towards the back end. It's right next to Hebrews, the book in the Bible that tells you that men's got to make the coffee in the morning. <laughs> Hebrews, yeah, whatever. I haven't used that one in a while, but I'm using it again, right? But, I mean, what do you mean? It is. Here's a shocker besides the belly button thing. Did you know the New Testament? It's the New Testament. It's all from God, but it's not presented in proper chronological order. It has a different rationale for that. So technically, believe it or not, James, even though it's towards the end of the New Testament, it's the first one. It's the first book ever under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to go out into the church. Well, why? Well, we'll get to that in a second, but let me see. Why do the people believe it's in the mid-40s? Well, number one, James does not mention anywhere in this book about the destruction of the Jewish temple that happened in 70 AD, which is a huge event. So it's got to be before that, people would say, and I would agree. Then you have another event. James does not mention the Council of Jerusalem, which occurred about 50 AD, right? Which they had to have because now Gentiles are getting saved, Okay, years later, as Paul and Barnabas go on their missionary journeys, and that was a big ruckus, and they're like, really? Even non-Jewish people can get saved? Yeah. But that was a huge council. He doesn't mention any of that. That was 50 AD. So that's why people would say 
This probably lands around somewhere in the mid-40s, as well as when you add the second part of that first verse, then it goes, oh, okay, that makes sense that this must have been about the mid-40s, right? And that's the phrase there. Who's he writing it to? The 12 tribes scattered what? Among the nations. I just had an email this week, and somebody says, yep, the book of James is written to the Jewish people, and uh, Paul wrote to the Gentiles. No, the book of James was written to the church. I said, well, it says 12 tribes. Well, let's do our investigation. He's not talking about the Jewish people per se, but did you know until Paul later, after the book of James was written, he and Barnabas goes out with the gospel and non-Jewish, i.e. Gentiles, get saved, right? Well, this is prior to all that. So did you know, guess what? The early church was made up of just Jewish people. That's it, right? Jesus was a Jew. James, of course, was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. The early church was only, it was only later, after the book of James was written, do we have this good news that all people can be saved, Jew or Gentile. This is what Paul says, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Okay? And so that's who he's writing here. It's prior to that. He's writing to the early church prior to the Gentiles starting to get saved, which was God's original intent the whole time, but they weren't going out of Jerusalem. And so he's writing to the early church that was all Jews, the, the 12 tribes, but then what's the phrase there? Scattered among the nations, right? So believe it or not, the Jewish people were told, the early Christians who got saved, who were all Jews, they were told, you're not supposed to stay just in Jerusalem. Jesus wanted the good news of the gospel to go where? All over the world. But they weren't doing that, right? And so that's what we see here to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Okay, he goes on and he talks about uh, this aspect here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive, Jesus speaking, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in where? Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the end or the remotest part of the earth. But these people weren't doing that. So what did God do? He allowed persecution, read the book of Acts, to get these people who were stuck in Jerusalem. They were feeling pretty comfortable, right? And there was all Jewish people getting saved because that's all there was in the beginning but they weren't obeying that command. So God lit a fire under them and says, hey, get out there. And so that's why James is writing to the 12 tribes at that time prior to the Gentiles getting saved, the early church, all Jewish people at that time, but they were what? Scattered among the nations, okay? And most would say that that scattering took place two to three years prior to the writing of the book of James. So let's put all this together. So here you have the early church at this time made up of only Jewish Christians, which if you're a Jew, even a Jewish Christian, you're from one of the 12 tribes. You weren't going out into all worlds. So Acts says God allowed persecution to come to get them to go spread out. So here it is. Now they finally spread out. They finally spread out. And here comes James with this book. And this book is all about how to spot a phony Christian. Some people would actually say James really doesn't have a theme. Yeah, it does. Some people say, well, James is only focusing on works. And no, he's not. In fact, some of the reformers, like Martin Luther, did not like the book of James. In fact, he didn't want it included in the New Testament because he misunderstood James. Because Martin Luther came out of the works-based false gospel, Roman Catholicism, and his big breakthrough was Romans 1, the just shall live by faith, right? Not of works. And so then he comes across James and thinks it's only speaking of works, and that's why he didn't. No, no, no. Romans and James do not conflict. They actually complement. Paul is just saying, of course, the just shall live by faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast, as Paul says later. James is saying, yeah, it's always faith. It's still faith. 
It's just there's such a thing as a dead faith. And a true faith, a real faith, is one that issues inappropriate behavior. Right? That's all he's saying. Okay? But anyway, but there, there is a theme. And that theme is to how to spot a phony Christian. Why? Because again, what's the context here? The timing of this book. You finally got the Christians finally going out in the world. They were only Jewish at that point. Right? So God stirs them up because of persecution, because they were stuck in Jerusalem. They go finally out in the world like you're supposed to, to share the gospel. Right? And then a couple years later, James writes this book to how to spot a phony Christian. Why? Because isn't that just like Satan? Of course, that's what he would do. Satan knows he's defeated, right? He's headed to the lake of fire. He knows the scripture. Jesus beat him on the cross. It's just, he's on death row waiting to sentence in the lake of fire. But Satan is so stinking evil. What's he doing? And what has he been doing ever since the birth of the church? He could not stop the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He could not stop the birth of the church. He cannot take away a Christian salvation. So what's he do? He knows that we're going to go out there like the other church into the whole world and tell people the good news. Anyone and everyone can get saved. He doesn't want that. So what's he do? He said, aha, I can't stop him from going out there. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to flood the church when they're out there of false teachers, false Christians, false prophets, false apostles. Do you see what he's doing? So that when the lost come in contact with them, what do they get? A false Christianity and a false gospel. Do you see what he's doing? Now you understand the importance of the timing of the book of James. Why is it the first book? Because right when the church finally gets out there and the good news of the gospel goes out, here comes Satan attack. Aha, I'm going to pollute the church. Then here comes God's counterattack, the book of James, how to spot those fakers in your midst that Satan's probably already got there. You see it? It's absolutely fantastic. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because our, the gospel and knowing that we have eternal salvation is the most valuable thing ever. And if you think about it, anything of value, it would be good to make sure that it's real and you didn't get schnookered, right? I, I just uh, 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 heard a story after the first service. One guy says, hey, this really happened. Because like, ladies, I mean, of course it's Christmas time and I'm sure Jonathan, you know, bought his lovely wife another, you know, million dollar necklace, right? Right, buddy? You know, he, he saved and scrimped and mowed yards and even though there's no yards in Vegas, but whatever, he tried, Right. <laughs> Uh, but uh, rake rocks or whatever you want. Right? But he and and so. But can you imagine if he's all of a sudden he bought her a fake one? Dude, you should saw your wife look right there. And that was funny. But anyway, that's right. You know, wouldn't it be horrible if you found out this thing that you thought was extremely valuable turned out to be a fake? I had one guy after service. He said actually he works with the MRI. Uh, department in, in the medical world. And he says, this actually happened to a lady. She had this, her husband bought her this big, big, beautiful diamond necklace, right? Right, and then she wore it. He said, as soon as she got in that thing, it went <laughs> and shattered in all these pieces. Gold, real gold and silver doesn't do that. So that was a rough day for that guy. <laughs> right? She thought it was real, but <laughs> we, had, we had another... Uh, uh, Mickey and Vesta used to come here. They've moved to Northern, California, or Northern Nevada. They're still part of our online family, but Mickey was a, a jeweler. And so I remember visiting his house one time and he says, he brought out some jewelry in three different pieces. He says, hey, which one of these is uh, gold? I said, well, they look all gold to me. He said, well, let, well, let's put them to the test, right? So he brings out this black stone and um, he, he takes the first piece of jewelry and he just scrapes it and makes a line you know, down with the first one. Takes the second one, same thing, third one, same thing. So now there's three gold lines. He goes, which one's uh, gold? So they all look gold to me. He goes, aha, let's do the acid test. And so what he did with those three lines right there, 
And then he took this white uh, acid in this bottle, white bottle, this clear uh, acid stuff, and he just drew a line quickly across all three. And in no time, two of them disappeared, but the real deal didn't go anywhere. That's how you know it was real. But you didn't know it was real until he did the acid test. And this is what James is all about. He's going to give us many acid tests to know the people sitting next to us in the church who come into our midst. Do they pass the test? They look good. They dress. They know Christianese. They're like Marjo. Hey, hallelujah. Hey, I don't save you. So he's going to start applying acid tests to see who stands. And can I tell you something? It's very clear in the scripture. If you're a true born again Christian, you don't disappear. You stick with Jesus. And that's what James is all uh, talking about here. Okay. In fact, uh, we're going to get ahead of ourselves, but just to show you what's coming. And this isn't all of them, but let's take a look at some of the acid tests that James is going to apply. The test of trials. Do you make it through your trials, still serving, loving, smiling for Jesus? Well, guess what? You passed the test. If you walked away, you were a fake. What about the test of obedience, the test of love, the test of true faith, the test of your mouth? Oh, I've heard people that uh, at so-called deacons means cuss some worse than sailors I know. Maybe they're saved. I don't know, but boy, howdy. <laughs> test of the tongue, test of submission, test of greed. And you think, well, this is testing, that's not right. That's... No, this is a biblical command. This is one thing you don't want to get wrong. It's, are you really saved? And it isn't just James, right? For 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you what? Fail the test. This is the most valuable thing ever, eternal salvation. You don't want to get this wrong. And so the scripture, not just James, all over the place, gives you tests to indicate that you got it right. Not only for us to protect us from these fakers trying to infiltrate, and dare I say, like what's happening today, infiltrate and take over the church. No wonder it's messed up. You got fakers running the church. But it's also so they can know, so they can get saved before it's too late. I shared the story at the first service. One lady, uh, true story, I used to pastor in Northern California. And she said, Pastor Billy, she said, I only recently got saved, even though I've been going to this church for 20, 30 years. I've been teaching Sunday school classes. I've been on every board you can shake a stick at. I, I, I've been looked upon as a pillar of this church. She says, but it's only recently that I really got saved and understood what it meant to surrender to the cross of Jesus Christ. And with tears in her eyes, she said, Pastor Billy, what concerns me is that if I were to have died during that time, which was recently before she just got saved, she said, I'm convinced this church would have given me a Christian funeral and held me up as a model Christian, and yet I'd be burning in hell. This happens all the time. And so it's a good thing to examine yourself. You don't want to get this wrong. One guy says this. Uh, I love this quote. He says, listen, an intellectual, perfunctory, ritualistic, external religiosity without the evidence of a transformed lifestyle, frankly, is an abomination to God and is very common. All over the place. Now, again, it's not just the book of James. In fact, I don't think this is by chance. As we saw many other passages of scripture, certainly in our last study, we saw God tells us how to spot these phonies. Again, not only to protect us, to keep us pure, but for their own benefit. Because the last thing you want is this reality. Like what would happen to that person I just described? If, if she didn't get saved, you know what would happen? She would have been thinking, I'm on my way to heaven, and she's there in the hospital bed or wherever it's going down. She's dying. She takes her last breath, and she literally in her mind is going, I'm going to heaven. And the next thing you know, bang, she woke up in hell. You need to know that you're really saved. 
That's why the scriptures say, examine yourself, test. This is not a game. But it's not just all of the scripture. James is what? The first book. You look at one of the last books of the Bible, 1 John, written about 95 AD. It's all about the same thing. So from the beginning to the end, God's saying, listen, you need to learn how to spot the phonies. They're going to be out there. And if you're one of them, you better get saved. But 1 John's all about the same thing, right? The same theme, right? Indications of true salvation. Do you confess your sin? Christians do that. Do you keep his commands? Not perfect, but he said, if you love me, you what? You keep my commands. That's what Christians do. Do you love your brother? Do you love, period? Uh, do you do the will of God, right? Or is it all about me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity? Do you acknowledge that Jesus is the son? Do you practice righteousness? Not saying you're perfect, but is that a way of life that you're praying, God, please, I want to be holy as you are holy? Is that even a, coming out of your mouth, right? Uh, do, do you not practice sin? Now, we're going to sin, but as a way of life. You can give a rip about sin. Who cares? Ah, God, that's not a good sign, right? Do you accept the apostles' teaching? Half of those professing to be Christians today in the church do not believe that this is the literal word of God. Well, guess what? You don't accept the apostles' teaching. I'm, I got a problem with that. Are you saved? How can you doubt the word of God, right? And he says, do you have the Holy Spirit? Paul says the same thing, Romans chapter 8. If you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ, right? Okay, and do you overcome the world? As we saw defined in that book, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That's how you overcome the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? But that's indications of true salvation. What about false salvation? It's the same. It's an acid test, just like the book of James. Here is what he says. If you say, make this statement, I've got fellowship with him, but you walk in darkness, what? You're a liar, and you don't practice the truth. You're a faker, right? I have no sin. Really? You deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. I have not sinned. You're a liar, and God's word is not in you. I know him, but you don't keep his commands. You're a liar, and the truth is not in you. I abide in him. Really? Then you ought to walk as Jesus walked. Hello, right? I am in the light, but you hate your brother? Uh, You are in the darkness, right? I love God, but you hate your brother? Well, guess what? You're a liar. So is it by chance? I don't think so. The very first book of the Bible, technically, James, right when the church is finally getting out there, being obedient, God had to use persecution to stir him up, sharing the gospel that anyone everyone can get saved. Satan couldn't stop it. But now he wants to pollute it. And then the, one of the very last books of the New Testament basically says the same thing from beginning to end. I'm kind of thinking that's an important thing. And can I tell you something? I am convinced, as I said last time, this is why the American church is so messed up. This is why the American church is full of so much apostasy because we are not paying attention to the scripture that tells us repeatedly, you better examine yourself. You better pay attention to people around you because guess what? There's gonna be a bunch of fakers and for their own good, they need to get saved. You need to love them enough to tell them the truth. Or if somehow they've wormed their way into positions of leadership and influence and teaching, you better eject them or they'll destroy the church. It's that important, okay? It's the most valuable thing. One guy says this, whether it's gold or silver or precious metals, whether it's diamonds, precious stones, or money, anything that has intrinsic value is subject to testing to affirm its true worth. And the most important commodity in all the world is our eternal salvation. It's priceless. It's the highest of value. To have a right relationship with the living God is to possess the most valuable thing in all of existence. And those people who believe they have that possession should be subject to a process of testing to determine its validity. By the way, you know what it says there? Greetings. We'll probably get into this more next time. Greetings. You know what? It's chiral in the Greek and it's continuance in the verb. So it literally means not just greetings. It means be constantly rejoicing. Why is he saying that? Because when you pass the test, as you go through the book of James, and you make it through all these tests proving that you are a genuine Christian and you have genuine eternal salvation, <laughs> that's 
constant rejoicing. Why? Because I'm not going to hell. Because I'm not living a self-deluded life. And I'm not going to take my last breath going, ha I'm going to heaven, but I end up in hell. I'm really going to heaven. Thank you, Jesus. Be constantly rejoicing. And he says this, there are people all over the world who, if asked they were having salvation, they would say yes, but they're wrong. True salvation needs to be subject to examination, subject to testing. That's a biblical concept. The testing of salvation throughout the scripture is called for. So let's take, and this, we're going to get into more of this, Lord willing, next week. I just want to give you a little teaser about this acid test. What it really is, it really, he's putting an acid test to see who's fake and who's real. Yeah. And let me give you real quick the first one that he's going to talk about. We'll get into this more detail. It's the test of trials. Okay. Do you stick with Jesus no matter how hard you've had it? How many people do you know? I was a Christian, I'll tell you what, but then this went wrong, and I didn't get this, or that happened. This happened right now, I'm mad at God. I'm like, well, guess what? You didn't pass the test. It got revealed through that trial. You were a faker. Now, let me give you uh, two examples. One, one that I believe, unfortunately, was a faker, and another one who passed the test, this first acid test. And again, we'll get in this much greater detail, uh, Lord willing, next time. But uh, his name was Sean. If you think about it, I don't even know if he's still alive. Uh, if he is, I hope he's saved by now. But this was my former roommate before I got saved. I was turned off to Christianity. You know why? By people who were doing the same sinful, rotten things I was doing during the week and the drugs and the immorality. But guess where they would go on Sundays if they weren't too hungover or strung out? So what message were these people sending to me? I didn't know. I didn't know this category that scripture talks about fakers, right? That people profess to know Christ, but they deny him by the way they live. We saw last week. I didn't know that. So I thought, well, that's Christians. That's Christianity. I wanted nothing to do with it because obviously it ain't working for you. So I was already pushed away and barking up all other kinds of false trees, unfortunately, because of what fakers, whatever you want to call them. But here comes Sean. Sean had, and he was my roommate for a while. Sean had a different story. And his story is this. I joined the church. I became a Christian. For a whole, here's a caveat, for a whole year. And he was studying the Bible. He was attending services, man. He was involved, and man, he was there all the time. And then, and then during that time, his older brother got sick with cancer, and so he's praying that God would heal his brother, and his brother died. And then Sean says, and that's it, I quit. Well, obviously, Sean just, uh, you know, he lost his salvation is what's going on. No, you can't lose your salvation, right? What's the scripture say? 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they really didn't belong to us. If they had belonged to us, here's your acid test, they would have what? Remain with us, but they're going to show that none of them belong to us. So John did, uh, uh, Sean didn't lose the salvation he never had in the first place. But what was it that brought it to light that guess what? You're there, you've been there, you've been sitting there faithfully for a whole year, but you're a faker. What brought it out? Trials. And dare I say, that's an act of mercy on God. Because again, the last thing you want is somebody going to church services thinking they're saved and they're not, and they die because anybody could die right now. We don't know that. Only God knows the day of our death. And you die and you go straight to hell. What a rude awakening. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy? We didn't know. Away from me, I never knew you, you evildoers. Oh, by the way, Sean didn't just go away. This was the guy who was my roommate. After this, I became a Christian and then not a Christian. No, if you're saved, you're saved forevermore. He's the one who introduced me to the satanic Bible, Anton LaVey, post his Christian experience, so to speak. 
He was also the one that had a lot of Christian paraphernalia left around when he was a, supposed to be a Christian. You know, he's got these plaques with the footprints in the sand and pictures of Jesus as the shepherd. And, and you know what we would do? Of course, I wasn't saved. We would go up to his parents' cabin with rifles and shotgun, and we would blow up those pictures of Jesus and laugh and mock. God, is that mercy on me? John was not saved, ever. He didn't pass the test. I hope he's saved now. But he went to church services. He read the Bible. He was active. He prayed. He knew Christianese. But God loved him enough to say, listen, son, you're not real. And you're in danger of hell, so I'm going to allow something to go the way you don't want it to go to wake you up so that you will get saved. Unfortunately, he did what the devil wanted him to do. He walked away the wrong direction. He was never saved. Now, let me give you, as we close, an obvious example of somebody who did get saved, who passed the test, who proved that they were a genuine Christian. And real quick, that's the Apostle Paul. If you ever read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, Paul didn't have, I don't call it just Paul's bad day. It's Paul's bad life. You thought you had a bad, you ain't seen nothing. And just real quick, Paul says, hey, listen, I went through privations. I went through persecution. I've had lack of food, lack of sleep, lack of shelter, lack of clothes. I'm daily concerned about the churches. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been flogged. And even when his head was getting ready to be chopped off, according to church history, right, Paul is making statements like this, proving he's a genuine Christian. He didn't jump ship. Watch this. 2 Timothy 4, 7 through I what? Fought. Past tense. He's done it. It's complete. He didn't jump ship. He didn't quit fighting. I have fought the good fight. I've what? I didn't jump ship like Sean. I finished the race. I what? I kept the faith. I didn't go to a different faith. I didn't go to non-faith. I kept the faith. And here's the payoff. Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. In other words, all who have passed the test, that listen, no matter what happens, God keeps his own. Jesus never promised his rose garden. He didn't say it was going to be easy. This isn't heaven. Heaven comes later. But listen, if you're a true born-again Christian, I don't care what you go through. You will never deny Christ. You will never walk away from Christ. If you do, you didn't pass the test. And even that, God is being merciful because he's trying to get your attention to say, listen, get saved. It's not religion that saves you. It's not church attendance that saves you. It's only the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God keeps his own. One guy says this, and I'll close. He says, one of the foremost, if not the foremost strategies of Satan in the world is to counterfeit salvation. It's to produce a non-saving faith, and you need to know that. He says, around the world, all these false religions spawned by the enemy, that's exactly what they're designed to do, to give people false security in man-made religion. Why do you think we've gone for years and we're still going through it? World religions, cults, and alcohol. Every single one of them, even the pseudo-Christian cults, Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Seventh-day Adventists, guess what? It's all works-based. It leads people to hell. That's what this He Listen, do you understand the context? Again, Satan couldn't stop Jesus from rising again from the grave. He couldn't stop the birth of the church. He can't take away your salvation. He couldn't stop the church. Finally, God had to use some motivation to get him go out into all the world, the gospel, anybody be saved. And so Satan says, aha, I'm going to pollute the church. And then he pollutes it with false paths, as many as he can come up with, and they're still coming up with today. 
He said, around the world, the false religions spawned by the enemy are designed to give people a false sense of security and religion. And so he wants to produce a non-saving religion, a religion that damns people to eternal hell. And even within true Christianity, right? He's still fighting to try to produce in our midst non-saving faith, people who believe themselves to be redeemed when they're not, who are living under the most frightening delusion imaginable. Satan's ploy is to attempt to make people think they're right with God when they're not. And listen, he says, I don't believe that Satan primarily wants people to hate God or run from God, although there are people that do do that. But primarily, he wants them to come to the wrong God in the wrong way and feel secure when they shouldn't. He wants them to think they've solved the issue of religion. They've solved the issue of so-called faith, that their destiny is secure when it's not. And they will be among those who hear the Lord say, away from me. I never knew you, you evil workers of iniquity. Satan wants people to feel comfortable and secure with non-saving faith. He wants them to believe they're on the way to heaven when they're actually on the way to hell. And he says this, so this epistle, here comes James, right out of the gates, very first one, right when the church is finally getting out there with what? The gospel. And it's a manual of tests by which the church can, listen, identify people in the congregation who are in error and have erred from the truth and turn them around to saving faith. That's the purpose of the book of James. I don't have time to it, but the very last chapter of James 5, that's why he ends with the words. And if you've seen somebody who's what? Straight away, what do you do? You lead them to Christ. Isn't that wild? That's just like the enemy. He knows his gig is up. He's going to the lake of fire. He couldn't stop the resurrection. He couldn't stop the salvation. Couldn't stop the birth of church. And when we got salvation, he can't take it away. So what's he doing? What's he been doing since the birth of the church? I'm going to flood the church with a bunch of fakers, false teachers, false prophets, false brothers. So that these people themselves will be deluded, thinking they're going to heaven when they're really going to hell. Or like what happened with me, these people profess to know Christ. They say they're a Christian, but they live like the devil. And then the lost person looks at that and goes, if that's Christianity... I don't want nothing to do with it. And here's the sad thing. If they would have known better, they would say, oh, the Bible says that's probably a faker because real Christians don't do that. Very, very valuable book, dare I say, for the days that we live in. Amen? That's why, Lord willing, next week, we'll get into this first acid test, the test of trials. Not just do you make it through your trials, but do you make it through with a smile on your face? Interesting. We'll close in prayer. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. 
And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even his name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the Scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step, to admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us, that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused 
to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you could be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave. And the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.